In the summer of 2017, I had to draw down the final aspect of the loan, which was just enough to allow me to pay the salaries. And at that point, I said to myself, I will never put myself in that position again. Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community, a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. Hello and welcome to another episode of Successes in the Mind with me, Oliver Bruce. If you're new to the show, we'll be discussing with current owner entrepreneurs, their failures, mistakes, passion and continued persistence in the face of business adversity. Not all entrepreneurs have completed their vision just yet. Some are just starting out. I want to give you a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. What does it take to become successful, to grow a brand or to start a business? Join me to find out from those that are currently doing just that. Today, I am joined by father and son duo and founders of the UK's biggest online sporting agents, Guns on Pegs. Conceptualised in 2007, Guns on Pegs was largely a side hustle. That was until 2009, when James and Chris Horn turned their passion into their business. Today, Guns on Pegs has over 115,000 members, with over 1,200 shoots listed across the UK. James is a serial entrepreneur, having founded many businesses, chief amongst which in 1994 was CCL Foods, which ultimately was sold to Baxter Food Group in 2003, before later becoming the executive chairman for Purdy Guns in 2014 and the CEO for Guns on Pegs. James's son, Chris, has, since a very young age, shared his father's entrepreneurial spirit, selling mixed mud and sand pots on the road outside their family home aged seven. Chris later went on to start his first proper business during his gap year before university and now oversees the growth of Guns on Pegs, sitting ultimately as the managing director. James and Chris, welcome to Successes in the Mind. Where on earth did you get this information? The bucket of mud and dog poo is quite funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Being a sporting agent is exactly what we're not trying to be, but the problem is when you create a business which hasn't been done before people immediately put you in a category that they can relate to so i don't get angry with people for calling us a sporting agent but a sporting agent would take money from a deal they would make commission like a travel agent Uh, and we are a disruptive free business so to try and explain to people right from day one what we do and how we work has been our literally our biggest challenge and we're nowhere near done yet In actual fact, we did a survey last year and 30% of our users, our active users, still don't realise that we don't charge commission and that we're totally free to use. It's just, it's amazing. It's uh, one of our biggest problems. But how how do you then make money if you don't charge commission? Until about two years ago, I said we didn't. But uh... (laughs) (laughs) I must say, when I started the business, we were actually very keen not to make money in order to ensure that we didn't have a competitor. And it was for some considerable period that it was not a money-making exercise because when we started it, uh, it was complete accident. And I remember I was running a big shoot near Newmarket and was fortunate enough to have the guys that funded the start of eBay and indeed were involved with the start of Google. And they flew over in their private jets from uh, California. 
I happened to say to Bruce Dunleavy, who's the head of Benchmark Capital, and he happened to earn 38% of Instagram personally when he sold it, but he's a serial investor into internet-based businesses. And I said to him for a laugh one day, why don't you make an eBay for shooting? And he turned around and said to me, well, James, we can't do it. Why don't you do it? And uh, that's actually how it started. I happened to say to him then, well, I don't know an awful lot about the internet. And he said, well, we'll give you a few words of advice. He didn't give us much. And he certainly didn't tell me it was going to cost several million quid to get the thing going. But what he did do is gave us that wonderful encouragement. It is actually Chris who's made it into the profitable and uh, sensible business it is now. <laughs> I made it into a sort of an opportunity and it's the partnership with Chris that's really made it into a viable business. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like saying like, you know, you, you're both on a surfboard, you do all the paddling and then I just get on the wave and do all the surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. One puts the hard graft in and one just, one just comes up the idea. But it has been a wonderful team effort, which started simply around our passion for shooting. It was my dad, me and Chris going shooting as a three generations, which standing together on a shoot produced some of the most wonderful memories I think we'll ever have. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this coincidence of being with Benchmark Capital and then me running a, a shoot gave us the, all the ingredients that we needed. And I've never forgotten when we got to 20,000 members at the start, you know, they were actually quite intrigued as they suddenly realized that, you know, what we've done is create a marketplace. And as Chris said earlier, it's a disruptive business, but we created a marketplace where buyers and sellers came together. Mm -hmm. And the part of the reason why we funded it so heavily in the early days was simply to make sure we own that marketplace, which is what we've actually ended up doing. Well, one thing that struck me, James, was when I was looking through last night at your profile, obviously, I suppose during a period of your life, you were both running a startup, uh, be it Guns on Pegs, as well as also overseeing uh, James Purdy, which is over 200 years old. I mean, I suppose going back to you, Chris, at what point did you go, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to exit the world uh, of finance and go and sort of put it all onto, onto black, so to speak? <laughs> so we were sitting outside a cafe called Franco's and I was 20, how was I, 25, 24? And we were looking at this thing that we were running effectively from our Blackberries at the time, just answering customer queries and stuff like that. And we basically said, look, we've got a chance now to try and turn this into a business. And a guy sitting next to us smoking a cigar overheard this conversation and basically turned around and said, how old are you to me? And I was like 24. And he was like, so what happens if you do this and it doesn't work? And he's like, you'll be like 26, right? And I was like, yeah, fine. He's like, you're only 26. I mean, that's not even a risk. Like, you could just start again. And it, it was actually really important. That was... Yeah, and that, I mean, that was... A, he was dressed in a black tie. I've never forgotten him and uh, a wonderful uh, guy. But he also then turned around and said, well, why worry about it, Chris, anyway? Because your old man can write you a decent part of the CV for the two years that you screwed this business up in. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Get on with it. <laughs> so let's just wind it back slightly, Chris, to when you were uh, much, much younger, obviously 24, and you, I suppose, came up with this concept. But going back to your teens, your dad was obviously running his own business. He was exiting his own business. Was there part of you that always wanted to run your own business? Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, everything that we're doing now or I'm able to do now stems back from that belief. 
100%. I grew up with my mum and dad running their own business. They were both entrepreneurs. They both had differing skill sets. Mum was the cook, dad was the business guy, and they successfully created a business from nothing and, and sold it for, for a nice amount of money. And that gave me all the inspiration I ever needed. I would come home from school, I was at boarding school, partly because mum and dad were just literally at work the whole time trying to make this thing a success and had nannies and all sorts when I was growing up for that same reason. But I wouldn't change it for the world because I learned a huge amount. And I think it just gave me the belief that you can just do this, just believe in yourself, believe in your ideas, run with it, keep going, and it will just come good eventually. And I don't know why, but that to me seems like the easy bit. It really does. Like That's the bit that's not even a risk, whereas other people, I think, see that as the biggest hurdle. So for you, what was the, the hardest bit, if that was one of the easiest? I think dealing with the constant battle of trying to make it a success. So it wasn't coming up with the ideas, implementing them, this, that and the other. It was making them make money, convincing people to spend money on something which wasn't really a thing. That for me was the hardest bit. And I remember dad and I having a fight over whether we should do a budget. <laughs> and, and what budget? Literally, I remember saying, dad was like, we need to do a budget. I was like, what's the point in a budget when, first of all, the revenue streams are going to be different by the time we even get there. And the numbers are going to be literally pie in the sky. I mean, we had no idea where our revenue was going to come from because we were coming up with things and then different stuff was happening. And we had this debate over a budget in about 20 even 2012 I reckon so we were still going for a while but we still had no idea where our money was coming from and ultimately I think I was probably wrong but there was a point to what I was saying which is that it was so difficult to predict and that stress over not knowing if something was going to work or not my god that cost you hours and hours of sleep endlessly and now we're able to predict the budget pretty accurately. So Chris before Guns on Pegs became a thing you actually worked for somebody you worked in a business this wasn't your first I suppose rodeo in as much as a career or a, or a sort of job talk to me about the early days yeah I was working for a fund manager asset management company and I loved that world it was something I always wanted to do and I sort of do it on the side as a hobby now I don't know if I learned many skills there I suppose the skills I learned were actually observing the people looking back you know the managers that were in those companies because I don't have much experience of working for other managers when you talk about management style I've got little to draw upon there and so maybe my experience then was most, most important. But when it came to write, I remember saying to my boss, dad and I are going to go make our little side hobby a thing. He just said to me, look, that's really on, like, honourable of you to sort of say this and, and do it like this. Well, how about I give you three months, uh, you can sort of work when you want and we'll try and keep the job open for you to come back if it doesn't work. I mean, they were literally so kind. And that basically enabled us to go, right, let's go for this, go make some sales because we need to make the sales now to prove it because obviously the company, if I wanted my job back, if we didn't make it work, would obviously that opportunity would disappear. And I remember having literally made no revenue from this tiny website with no traffic, we managed to pull in, I think, £64,000 in about five months or something five or six months in that first time when dad and I sat around the dining room table on the 1st of September 2009 and we went and got 
deals with companies now that I would be happy with, with all the traffic and the users that we've got. I mean, it literally was a case of two people walking in with more passion that they just couldn't say no to. It wasn't, it wasn't about the stats. It was like, please buy into us. <laughs> That's amazing. And when you went back to your, I suppose, previous employer and said, look, Macy, thank you very much for the offer. But unfortunately, I'm sticking now with guns on pegs and my vision. What was his reaction? He loved it. And I had an email from him about five minutes before we went on this podcast, would you believe? <laughs> we still see each other uh, with, the, with the team that I was involved with at that time. We, we go to Goodman's every Christmas, you know, the state restaurant in Mayfair, because mm-hmm. everyone loves it. And so we go and do that and everyone's doing different things now. But yeah, he was really pleased. And um, I was hugely grateful of him. And, you know, he's the kind of one of the only bosses I've had, so... I don't know whether he was any any good or not, but I enjoyed our time. (laughs) That's a hell of an opportunity, though, for someone to just go, have three months for free, I suppose. Would you have still done it if he'd not given you that, I suppose, leeway? Yes, we would have done. It's just that I might have looked at it slightly differently. I don't know. I don't know if it changed much, but it was really nice of him at the time, and I suppose it made you feel good about what you were doing, and maybe I slept better for the first three months, gave me more energy to go and do those deals. I don't know. And James, what was your reaction when when Chris sat you down on the 1st of September 2009 and said, this is what we're doing, we're running with our side hustle? I looked at him and said, "Uh, are we? Um, and, <laughs> and then uh, I, uh, no, we've been a brilliant team. We have an immense respect for each other. It was great to have a partner because I'm sure as many entrepreneurs have told you, it's very lonely at the top. And at times you're being shot at from every angle. It's quite, quite uh, a tricky life. But no, we sat down and we as partners were in partners in crime in this business uh, and we got on and did it. And I think it's very much the, the team the teamwork, which is why it's so important when you're hiring people to make sure that they fit with the culture and they fit with the blend of people that you want. And Chris and I are fortunate enough to get on really well. Could you have done it without each other? No. I don't think so. No, probably not. No, definitely not. Uh, the reason being that we actually carved out roles for each other without really meaning to quite early on. I'm a real techie geek at heart. And although I'm not a developer, I, I wish I had been in, to be able to create the product rather than having to explain to someone in the middle of the night, I would just sit at my computer and do that. I, I still wish I keep looking at developer courses so I can go and do that. But yeah, the, the techie side of the business I ran with and ultimately, obviously, the way the world has gone, the business got got more and more techie. So dad's role as more of the ambassador, especially with the type of customer that we talked to, became really important. And I was doing the sort of more feature creation, you know, route to market, that sort of stuff. And dad was dealing with all the people and the key customers and stuff like that. So that changed. And then once I got respect from others in our industry, and it sounds ridiculous to say that, but once I got respect from others in our industry by 2015, having actually got a business that is in the techie world and the internet, yes, it's a thing, it's not going to go away. And this this young chap runs it because he understands the internet and you don't, Mr. Old Fuddy Duddy. That's kind of the attitude it was. And from that point onwards, the business changed. But in the early days, we wouldn't have got away with it. I needed dad there with some grey hairs to give me any credibility. Wow, so it was the right place really at the right time with a huge amount of education for both your clients and I suppose yourself during that process. Massively. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. James, talk to me about your childhood, I suppose your teenage years, and when you went into, I suppose, business at such a young age. Talk to me, talk to me about that journey. I was sent away to school from a fairly young age. My parents were running their business, so it was brilliant. And in fact, 
One of the things that I've always felt very strongly was I said to my dad after I sold our food business, uh, I'm going to repay you every penny that you spent on my education by taking you shooting. And we went for eight years shooting 30 plus days a season. Uh, so he got his money back, I think, by the time we'd finished. <laughs> Now, we've always been a very close family. Funnily enough, I was offered a job with Shell when I was 17. Uh, and I was really lucky because when there was a shortage of graduates, would you believe? I'm just kind of revealing how old <laughs> I am now, but I went on a summer holiday course with Shell and enjoyed it. They then invited me back the next year and I was given a job before I took A-levels. And then uh, they then sent me to college in my first three years at Shell. So I was a really lucky guy, but when I joined when I was 18, I vowed I'd leave when I was 32. And in those days, you know, a job was, with Shell was like a job for life. But on my 32nd birthday, I handed in my notice and said I was going to start my own business. My wife looked at me as though I was completely barking mad. But we developed this uh, mustard, which I had been taking up and down to London in my briefcase and selling to all sorts of people. And we said, let's make a fist of this because life in Shell, you'll never be rich, but you'll never be poor. And it'd be quite nice to sort of see whether we can give it a go. And we created a, a small business making a few jars of mustards into a big business that had two big factories. Uh, we created Feature Express salad dressing, uh, Mary Berry salad dressings, and we became the main supplier to Waitrose for all sauces and salad dressings. And it was uh, out of the blue that we sold it when we were approached by Baxter's and we told them no several times before eventually we, they said, well, when will you sell it? And we said, well, maybe in three years time, we'll think about it. And uh, they said, well, how much will you want then? And my wife came up with a, a figure then and she said, well, we'll give it you now. So uh, suddenly we find ourselves <laughs> without a business, but it was a fabulous, a fabulous journey through creating that business. And then we went on with our Omega-3 milk and then Guns on Pegs came about. So we've done a lot of very interesting things. And then in the meantime, actually, after I left Shell, I did fund some of my income by, uh, I was responsible for some of Shell's service stations in uh, Luxembourg, which are the biggest service stations Shell have in the world. So I looked after them on an ad hoc basis for about seven years. I was the most incompetent consultant because I managed to stay uh, with them for a very long time, uh, which was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And during 03 and 04, when you uh, got rid of, or sold, I should say, CCL, you obviously had a year with Baxter's trying to integrate and onboard, I suppose, in that sense. How was it almost saying goodbye on day one to CCL and then having to integrate it into another business and they're pushing back and asking you to do things you might not want to do? Well, it didn't, it didn't last long, to be honest. I was quite surprised by the first two board meetings were held on English bank holidays in Scotland and all the directors were Scottish. That sort of gave me a bit of a message that perhaps I wasn't particularly welcome. So uh, it didn't last long. And funnily enough, I just enjoyed going shooting and the idea of being told what to do was somewhat sort of alien to me at that stage because I think when you've run your own businesses and you're fairly determined to achieve an objective, being told by others uh, what to do. And I recall being told that you had to ask questions for the board meeting in advance 
uh, of the meeting itself and uh, I found that quite tricky to handle so uh, I moved on fairly swiftly. It was a horrible time in a way because I was working in the factory on my gap year. I took my fork track licence because I realised I'd get paid more than if I worked on the packing line before ski season I wanted to go on <laughs> and so I was working in the warehouse on the fork track and mum was still producing recipes and they changed the locks of the factory after they effectively you and them parted ways and so mum and I came home with a new set of keys it was absolutely ridiculous but really sad I mean if you actually sort of think about it you know you've had the locks changed on your little business and we've still got access and you don't I mean it's gut-wrenching but you know this is what people go through I suppose it must be horrible and I've, I've never had to exit from a business there's so many lessons that people think they know when they get to these points how do you find taking advice from family members because I'm right in saying that they say never work with friends family or animals of which I think you guys do all three Work- <laughs> working with dad and having that father-son relationship has definitely been one of the best things about our business, but if not the most challenging. And when I joined Vistage and I got access to this network and this particular chair, a chap called David Sheepshanks, who's been inspirational to me in the last three years, that really changed things because the dynamic between my dad and myself is totally different to anyone else. You know, when you're in the heat of the moment, you say things to your dad you regret. End of story. Like, everyone does that. And we would just have blazing rows about whether it was right to charge the shoot or the advertiser in this scenario and not in this (laughs) scenario. I mean, just ridiculous conversations that should never have been that heated. I think I owe a lot of credit to dad in that scenario because it takes dad's mature shoulders and experience to try and calm me down and I'm running around with all these crazed ideas and all the energy in the world, but definitely that dynamic in the early days of dad's experience and my energy and my technical ability and dad's marketing experience, all the rest of it, that's really what got us to where we are. There's obviously an element, I suppose, in your industry, which differs to most other industries in as much as there are people that just simply outright don't agree with it. How do you overcome such negative press? I think the best place to start with that is that when you go shooting, you are creating a food source and you are eating game. And therefore, there is absolutely a good justification for conducting that sport in order to be able to provide that food source to all those that love it. And I think that's the key. So it doesn't matter how big the shoot is, whether it's a commercial shoot or a small one, if they are ensuring that that produce that is harvested on that day is going as a food source, there is absolutely no issue. I think the idea of killing for fun is absolutely abhorrent and that's not what it is. And we're luckily with our sport, I think it is a sport which is very much all about enjoying other people and enjoying a social occasion. And that I think is probably one of the key things. I reckon I've spent less than 0.1% of my time worrying about it. That's really interesting. And again, is that is that because you're simply not getting the complaints in or you're just brushing over them? I mean, 99% of the UK couldn't give two hoots about shooting. Mm-hmm. It's just that when you get a few people on social media giving one click on a petition that they don't agree with something, suddenly it looks like that has to be debated in Parliament. It's not even representative. It's so easy. And this is one of the problems with our society at the moment. But genuinely, it's not really an issue for us. Uh, Yes, there's people that don't like what we do, but they don't affect what I do on a daily basis. When I had the pleasure of shooting, Chris, with yourself and your dad, you guys were ecstatic. You were on the peg. You were having a fantastic day. At what point did you realise that your slogan, plan the best days of your life, was actually so so good, I suppose, so apparent, so apt? It took a long time to come up with that. We got the help of an agency, which I was initially really concerned about because of the cost of doing it, but outsourcing 
that was was a really good thing to have done because the plan the best days of your life you're you're right it's absolutely spot on and i think when you land on the website reminding people of why it is they do this and trying to get the customer into the mindset of what it is that they've come on to to achieve is crucial because it's going to change their habits on the website it's going to affect the key metrics which make our business run and i think fundamental to our business you know our key drivers behind the scenes are people joining up how many people visit the website and how long they spend on it and how long how many times they return because we make money from advertising from both sides both from brands and both from shoots and so plan the best days of your life is really crucial to driving those metrics because it's fun you've obviously started to diversify because obviously guns on pegs is owned by itap i believe now you've, you've got another business within itap called uh, event mo am i right in saying eventmo eventimo yeah so we did diversify it goes back to your market point actually about the size of the market we definitely looked at diversification so i tried to create a system for payments within the shooting sector called shoot pay i knew that there's all this money knocking around there's well over a billion pounds spent on just the purchasing of shooting within the market itself and so we knew that if we could get our hands on some of that money going through there's very very small amounts of margin you can make on facilitating payments on bringing customers all that sort of stuff so there was things we could do there however when when i created the system with my development team i knew that it was going to be wasted on the shooting market because it's too niche so we opened it up for group travel which is essentially what shooting is and i sold it into stag and hen agencies and it facilitated payments for small stag and hen agencies for like five or six years and literally some of those businesses gave us the best testimonials ever it turned them around over the last year i've recognized that we've got some big ambitions with guns on pegs we've got some really key things we need to achieve so i basically found another company who i could sell it to and sell the customer base and some recurring revenue all sorts of stuff and formulated a deal with them now it just so happened that i did that at a time when it was the right thing to move on from that business because the travel sector at the moment is obviously not the place you want to be no no indeed. and was that your first exit from any business it, it is you know it's not a big multi-million pound exit but it's something i created from scratch so yes exited and then last week i genuinely well i think week four i had this moment where i was like wow that thing is gone and someone else is going to be operating in that sector and shit i'm not involved and that's really sad <laughs> was it hard to let go of your baby regardless of what you netted from it was it difficult to say goodbye yeah i still had loads of unfinished business i don't believe there's anyone that's ever sold a business that didn't have future ideas oh i've often thought you need bereavement counseling once you've sold a business when we <laughs> when we sold the food business i it was like selling another child everything that you've created and the years of effort that you've gone to and suddenly it's gone and okay you may have got a pile of money for it but it doesn't make up for the you know extraordinary history you have in creating it it makes you question also why you do it in the first place i say not question it makes you realize why you do it in the first place because it wasn't that you were creating that business for the money you were creating that business for the journey for the fun that you were going to have, the people you're going to meet, that you know, Dad and I love doing deals. We love seeing progression, growth, just people doing the things that we create. And actually, that's the bit you don't realise until it's gone. I think it's been an important lesson I've learned, at fortunately, a younger age, to realise that because yeah, I wish someone had told me that in my twenties, but I probably wouldn't have believed them. Okay, so there's obviously a gap and a hole in your in your heart, I suppose, guys. Now you've sold sold that business. If we take it right back, what's the biggest Chris I'll start with you the biggest mistake you've ever made that if you could tell yourself when starting out in business to not do you would 
I don't know about mistake. I think learning, understanding that it's going to take a huge amount of time to make this a success. Very few businesses are actual overnight successes. Even these stories about people who are making hand sanitizer, uh, you're doing hand sanitizer, but people making hand sanitizer and suddenly turning over 50 million quid the next day after securing a contract, you know, it, it's rubbish. There was nothing, there was loads of stuff behind that that had to occur for that to be in position. So I think for me, it's understanding how long it's going to take and recognizing that all the mistakes along the way, so I can think of revenue streams that Dad and I have created that were just total trash, but at the time we were thought they were great, but they are so important for you to recognize what will work. And when you do know what works, you narrow down your product range, your revenue streams, whatever you want to call it, and you focus on those. They become your core business. But at the start, there's no way you know what your core business is unless you're in a bit more of a traditional business model than we're in. So at what point during that process in terms of when you say you've obviously generated a lot of revenue, again, guns on pegs might not necessarily have been turning a profit from day one as you pumped a lot of cash into it. At what point did you start to make money with this business? 10 years after it started. Wow, so you were bankrolling it for 10 years. That's why I'm on the street now with my cap in hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so um, genuinely, yes, it, it got stressy. We took on investment in 2013 from a hedge fund manager who loved his shooting. He bought into what dad and I believed in and without him we wouldn't be still going. In the summer of 2017, in July, I had to draw down the final aspect of the loan which was just enough to allow me to pay the salaries in the summer of 2017. And at that point, I said to myself, I will never put myself in that position again. It was disgusting. I hated every second of it. And I I made some wholesale changes, took 150 grand off the bottom line overnight, which involved having to lay people off, moving office, doing all sorts of things I didn't want to do. And we made some significant changes. And I said to everyone, called everyone around basically and said, right, this is the way it's going to be going forward. We streamlined what we were doing and we pushed on from there. And then we've had significant growth ever since. And we were losing... 150 grand a year at that point. How the hell did you get investment if you're losing money? How did you go to the guy, I've lost money for 10 years, I'd like you to give me your money, I don't understand. The plan we had in place was genuinely, it made sense. Like it wasn't just a pie in the sky plan, it made sense and we're now proving that. We've paid all of his loan back. We're now making, you know, quite nice profits. But ultimately I I think he just believed in us. I think that one of the key things in everything I've done in my life is I've always had an an extreme belief and both Chris and I share the same level of determination to succeed and we've known all along that this would work but we have to try many many things and we had the financial backing really to have the luxury to be able to try which of course a lot of businesses don't have so we did try most things and Chris was incredibly brave in 2017 when he effectively restructured it I felt very uncomfortable with it in the sense that it was a couple of steps backwards, but we took those steps backwards in order to go much further forwards. And that determination to succeed, I think, has been the real key to our success. Could you have lost it all? God, we nearly did. I've nearly lost it all several times, so it's kind of a feeling I've got used to now. It's <laughs> not one that many people want to get used to. How do you overcome it, James? How do you get... Obviously, you know, you've been through it a number of times, but how do you go... Okay, we're just back here. I need to carry on, motivate myself, push myself forwards without just throwing the towel in. As I said, it is that determination and that self-belief. And I remember many times thinking, gosh, I think it's time to call it a day. 
But if you believe in what you're doing, and I know it sounds sort of maybe strange or trite, if you have sufficient belief that what you're doing is right and the confidence to then carry it on, then it will succeed. Hopefully, as we also touched on, if you take advice from outside parties to make sure that you have a sanity check and to make sure that you know you really aren't trying to push water uphill, that's a good thing. But honestly, it is simply that belief and that determination to make it work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think actually back to that summer of 2017, I just think at no point did I actually believe that it was going to end and like we were going to run out of money or whatever. I just thought that was something that people sort of talked about. I just knew deep down that like we're going to do whatever it takes to get through this, and we did. So, gentlemen, you may or may not have <laughs> heard of this game called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, probably. But essentially, this game is bespoke to Guns on Pegs for this podcast. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out shoot locations, such as Hungerford Park, and you need to reply with the county or area which that shoot is located in, for instance... <laughs> Berkshire, okay? Damn it, I knew that one. <laughs> I knew that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the idea. Now, this is really important because it's against Chris and James, obviously father and son. Whoever wins, obviously, um, is, the, is the better, I suppose, child or father. So, <laughs> so, oh so we'll, we'll give it a go, okay? No pressure, and I know you're in the same room, so, so no cheating. But Graithwaite Shoot. Where is Graithwaite Shoot? Cumbria. Oh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> is it, Chris? Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. <laughs> oh, that well, was James yeah. first. I can't, give you, I can't give you that one, Chris. How about Glen Alden? Perthshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll go for Scotland with a Glen. Actually, it's the only Isle of Man. So there you go. So zero points oh there. Oh, my God, I feel really embarrassed here because they were in an email the other day and I remember looking at it. Best not send them the podcast, Ooh. Chris. Um, yeah. Arley Estate Shoot. Uh, Reading, near uh, Berkshire, I'd say. Uh, no, 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 Shropshire. Liverpool, Liverpool. No, no, Liverpool. Shropshire. It's Shropshire. Oh. Liverpool. You're both wrong, to be honest with you. It's actually Worcestershire. Oh, oh bloody hell, of course it is. <laughs> it's part of Oliver Davis's thing where we shot together. <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, that, in, to my credit, that is we were based in Shropshire at the time and it's just over the border. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm out of the questions because some of them were agents, some of them were, were locations, but uh, the, the, the scores on the doors, uh, James won, Chris none. <laughs> Bloody hell. That's They're an awkward good game. That. I like it. I'm going I'm to play that with the team. I haven't beaten him for ages. <laughs> with, a, <laughs> with a stick or just in life generally? Well, uh, both. <laughs> so, James, in the sort of wealth of experience that you've managed to accrue over the last number of years, has there ever been a kind of old crap moment where you have to all sit down, all hands kind of discussion and, and sort of work out what the hell you're going to do next? Yes, there's been quite a number, I would imagine. And I quite enjoy specialising in forgetting those moments so that uh, I can enjoy the successes. But I, I, I can give you one example was when we had a product in the food business that went wrong, that required a recall, which is the most ghastly experience with the supermarkets. And actually handling that and handling the publicity, being upfront and being honest as to what's happened and accepting it and taking it on the chin. And then, of course, rebuilding and you have to rebuild your both your customer's credibility or your credibility with the customer. And you also have to then make sure the final customer understands what's happened. So, you know, those can be desperate moments. And I remember we were on holiday once on the Norfolk Broads. I remember with Chris and uh, Zoe and... Uh, I remember sitting on the top of the boat sort of talking through, you know, the action plan to put these things right. 
No, I can also remember other moments when, you know, you were really wondering whether you could meet the payroll. I've always thought that maybe that was something only, only I experienced. And I've never forgot one evening sitting at a, a function in London and talking to a guy who was based in New York and had 5,000 people on his payroll. And he was telling me about his sleepless nights, about paying, paying them. So, you know, there's many instances where you really have to sit back and rethink and maybe even change direction. And it's that having that ability, as Chris has referred to, to bin certain ideas. We tried lots of ideas and uh, being brave enough to be able to bin an idea or bin a, prod a product or project that you've uh, refined is one of the great challenges, but you have to be brave. So at what point is the right point then to stop? If, if indeed you wanted to carry on and you were pushing through because you felt it was the right thing to do, have either of you been in a position where you go, okay, now I do need to stop? I'm determined to keep on going and to keep encouraging Chris. And even if we were to divest from guns on pegs, we would still we would start something else anyway. Because it's so much fun. That's part of the fun of having a business. It's to enjoy yourself and to stimulate it. And one of the greatest things I enjoy, and I think Chris shares this, is seeing people achieve things in your company that they never believe possible. For me, that is the greatest satisfaction I've ever had from running any of the businesses. And you meet young people, they come in maybe straight from school, straight from uni, and then suddenly they're running an important part and you just see their confidence grow. It is a wonderful, wonderful privilege that uh, you as a business leader have to see that happen. I'm really interested in actually asking people questions about their management style and how they go about motivating, I suppose, the people that work around them. Because a lot of entrepreneurs haven't had, uh, I suppose, tuition on actually how to be managed because they may have dropped out of school or just worked for themselves from day one. So I suppose, Chris and James, how do you manage and motivate your staff to get the best out of them? I think we hire against our values and what people want. And so hopefully people then think the same as I do. But what I try and do is if they buy into what it is that we stand for and they like the feeling of responsibility, the business ownership side of things, getting involved in your managing your revenue stream, having significant responsibility over the, the direction of that revenue stream, you know, that sort of approach, if that rubs off on the person we're trying to hire, then that's someone I want in my team. And I didn't realise until recently in my short career, 35 now, but I didn't realise maybe until three, four, five years ago, four years ago probably, how important the sort of value aspect of the individual was and the actual importance of the team, not just the ideas that you had in place. That's been hugely beneficial for us over recent years. And I think just allowing them to sort of have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit and get on and grow the business and hopefully try and share some of those rewards with them, which we're now starting to do. So obviously you started to turn a profit uh, sort of 10 years after you started Guns on Pegs. At what point did you sort of sit back and go, yeah, we're on the money, this is really working now? Last year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. Uh, I started, I paid off the rest of the loan and I had a budget for this year, you know, the 2020 that's being written off, what should have been, what will be next year. I had a budget which is really quite nice. And I suddenly realised, oh my God, I'm going to pay my parents a dividend 
I'm going to be able to do things there. They're going to be able to go on holiday out of, a, out of some money that I've created for them. And I'm paying for my house. I've moved house and we've got a lovely place now. And all these things have been created out of this funny little idea that loads of, loads of people didn't think would work. And genuinely, I know it's been successful in many different ways you could describe up until last year. But last year, it became financially quite attractive. And at that point, I suddenly thought, now it all works. And now we have the ability to make new decisions where we have a kind of bit of leeway for it to go wrong and not panic. And I think that for me, that was a big turning point. And since then, I've changed as a person. I think, I think, I think the team would tell you that <laughs> because it's just changed my mindset entirely. So it's having that sort of headroom, I suppose, which has been the point you realised, yeah, no, we're on to something. Yeah, I was walking down the pavement and Chris rang me and I've never forgotten it. And he said, Dad, we've just made this profit and this is what we're forecasting. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was so, a joke call. Uh, <laughs> but actually, no, it was brilliant. And uh, yeah, we've been sharing the budgets and so on and so forth. But to see it actually happen is unbelievably rewarding and makes you realise that you know the whole journey of the business has been worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, just to touch back on the something, it's just made me realise, I remember going to parties, because we're in a hobby sector, there's lots of people that love what we do. I've been going to parties for years and people are like, oh, that's Mr Guns on Pegs and my God, tell me everything about you and lots of people just want to talk if they've never met and I find it so embarrassing and like so weird because I'm like, honestly, you haven't seen the budget, don't ask me those questions type thing. And so that's where I find you've got different metrics of success and those are really important to keep you going that people buy in like you've got happy customers you've got people buying into the concept and things like that but it's when it all clicks together and it helps pay the mortgage and it does all those other things you know that's when it became something that you really really valued and dare i say did you have a business plan or was that something that frankly didn't uh, come to fruition until 2014-15 oh no i think we've, we've always had a plan which was to dominate the shooting market and the buying and selling of shooting. We've often debated about sporting agents and the role that they have, but our view was always to be the biggest player because once you hold the marketplace, you can bring in all sorts of aspects as we've done. For example, you know, a hotel guide is one thing, insurance is another, and there are numerous different avenues down which you can go. And I think one of the key things is having faith and belief in what you're actually doing to drive it to where you want to be. And yeah. that's the thing that I think Chris and I have always held on to. And of course, it was important to have sufficient funds to be able to ride out the uncertain periods when the revenue wasn't clear. But you know, I think one of the things about the journey is very much one's determination to make it work and to try things. And you know, if they don't work, just to try a bit harder. And then the other aspect is to take advice from people and listen to other people's views. The thing I've learned more about from running my food business through to the dairy business to even when I was running James Purdy is taking advice from people that are very experienced. And even in the technical world, the technology world, now there is enormous amount of experience out there that you can talk to. And one of the things that uh, I'm very proud that Chris has done is taken advice from people that really know what they're doing. And that can save you an absolute fortune. Would you do it all over again if you could? If you could start from day one, would you go, yep, yeah, that's it, I'm going to do it again? Yeah, I mean, it's so much fun. And I think 
you know, sharing the experiences with others, creating success creates further success, and uh, enjoying that with other people is such good fun. And you know, running a business isn't that hard. We do seem to make it incredibly complicated, but actually the basic <laughs> principles are quite straightforward. And you know, I, I, I'm lucky. I've been in food, I've been in oil, I've been in milk, I've been now in the internet business. I've worked for a gun business, all sorts of disparate sort of subjects. But uh, the principles are pretty much the same. It's such great fun. So uh, you know, I, I'm determined to carry on working until I'm uh, Gaga, really. So uh, and Chris will argue I'm already reached that, but I mean, listen, uh... <laughs> no comment there, James. <laughs> I got in there quick with that one. <laughs> There's one big thing to add to what Dad's just said, which is if I'd hope that if we were doing our next business, we would have exited and had some money to start it. And I think that's the one massive difference. Yeah. When you've got a bit of money, it's so much easier to make money than it is to start off a five grand credit card or something like that. I mean, uh, that that is yeah. wildly different. Absolutely. I mean, there is no question that trying to start a business when you're underfunded is incredibly difficult. And having adequate funds makes life a lot easier. Yeah, guys, it's been a lot of fun doing this podcast and thank you both very, very much for coming on. Yeah, that was really good fun. Lovely to chat it through and thank you for giving us that opportunity. Yeah. To check out the Guns on Pegs website for articles, their podcast, or to book one of the best days of your life, head over to gunsonpegs.com. Join me next week where we'll be discussing more about failures, mistakes, passion, and persistence with another inspiring owner-entrepreneur who is currently in business. Thanks once again for listening. Take care. If you've enjoyed this program, then please show your support by subscribing via Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast streaming services. Why not share it with at least three friends? And of course, make sure you tune in next week. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Contact me via Twitter at OliverBruce underscore biz or via LinkedIn at OliverBruceOnline. Thank you. Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. 